Hello and welcome to HX Superheroes, where we explore the full story of human-centered leadership when it comes to making strategic and operational decisions, no matter what your business is. In today's episode, we're really lucky to have Peter Zapelius, partner at Leonard Green & Partners, a leading private equity firm with over $75 billion in assets under management, with investments in over 120 countries worldwide. Peter's going to share with us his thoughts on private equity and most importantly, investing in turbulent times. Peter, thanks for joining us for our first inaugural HX Superheroes podcast. What do you think of this setup so far? It's great. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Glad to be the first and hopefully not the last. So I think maybe just to start things off, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, a bit about your background, where you grew up, and uh, how you got to where you are today. That would be a great start. Sure. Happy to. I have a bit of a you know non-traditional background with regard to Wall Street. You know, most people that end up on Wall Street kind of started out with some sort of family history or understanding of it. And I didn't have that. I grew up in Long Island and uh, to a very middle-class family. My, my dad uh, killed himself when I was 13, and that really obviously shook my family and uh, caused me to have to get a job when I was when I was young and kind of you know have myself, my sister, and my mom all kind of fend for ourselves. And it created. Uh, what was a lot of uh, you know, uh, you know, personal history and uh, you know, I interest in working hard and understanding what it was like to work hard has kind of stuck with me throughout my life. Um, wound up luckily having a great group of friends, including my, my current wife, who was a great friend at the time. That uh, was a was just a really strong uh, bedrock for me, and allowed me to find my way to college. allowed allowed me to find my way to an internship on Wall Street. And uh, from there, the rest is history. I say I'm you know, kind of the luckiest person in the world because I never would have planned I would uh, be a partner at a private equity firm at this point. Um, probably don't deserve to be based on my academic background. But, <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think that we are all a, a collection of our experiences. Yeah, and I, you know, I think really understanding where people come from, what experiences they've had, are really important to understand how to interact with them. Yeah. So that's why I give you that, that background. Oh, that's, that's great. I mean, certainly the environment in which we're sort of raised and the experiences that we're exposed to is what really is the driving force behind some of the decisions that we make, whether it's personal or career or otherwise, and certainly applies to, to my own history. And it's a, it's a pleasure to, to get a chance to speak to you a little bit about your background. Now, you know, I've, we've had a few conversations over the last, uh, last few months, and I've come to realize that you are quite the devoted cyclist. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I understand you you didn't actually ride in the Tour de France. You rode in the Tour before the Tour de France. Yeah. The, the Tour is, is, a, is a completely democratic, you know, spectator experience. Wherever you want to sit, that's the spot that you get to watch the pros go by. So the mountaintop finishes are all filled with people a week in advance. You know, people from all over Europe drive, you know, camper vans and, you know, hang out and party for a week before the pros go through. So as a spectator, you actually have great, you know, uh, I'm sorry, as, a, as, a, as an amateur, you actually have great, you know, spectator support throughout, uh, throughout the ride. And every year they pick like the most iconic mountaintop finish for amateurs to ride through. So it's a cool experience. The second time I've done it. I did it in 2019 and they took two years off due to COVID and did it again this year. And this year was you know, ultimately my ride, including kind of going back to the Airbnb we were staying at was about 116 miles and 16,000 feet of elevation it took me nine and a half hours. Uh, you get a lot of thinking done on your bike in nine and a half hours. Yeah, I'll say, I'll say. Now, as, as a bit of a sports enthusiast myself, one of the things that I sort of came to recognize later on in my 
professional life is the link and the parallels between sort of elite sport and that of sort of elite corporate life. Can you draw the same sort of parallel in terms of your experience with cycling and what you do today working with Leonard Green? I think that sport is very much a microcosm for life and very much for, for business also. Um, and there are different elements of sport that I think are applicable. The first is you know, hard work. There is a direct relationship between working hard and performing well. You yep. see that in sport, you see that in business. It's no you know, shortcut to success. You know, the idea of you know, being talented, I think, is very much overrated. Uh, work and focus will override talent any day, in my opinion. Um, the second thing is uh, teamwork. You know, when you're in sport, almost irrespective of what the sport is, there's a strong element of teamwork where people have their own positions and to the extent that they're comfortable playing those and supporting each other. Um, you know, sometimes they shine, sometimes they provide the assist. That's, you know, very applicable. And the third is failure. You know, when you're in sport, sometimes you lose and that sucks. And in business, that happens too. And just taking lessons from the losses and making yourself and your team better as a result of it are, are perfect. You know, I, I, th I think about that a lot with my kids. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I played hockey like you did. Yep. I played lacrosse. Um, I only really got into running and cycling as an adult. I didn't do it when I was a kid. Um, but you, know, you learn a lot when you, in particular, when you're on physical team sports. And you know, when you're when you're a hockey player, you get you get your bell rung. Getting back up and getting back at it is not necessarily yeah. easy. And so, you know, my kids, I've, I've definitely pushed them to try to get into team-based physical sports. Also, it's, they're not necessarily as popular as they were when we were kids, but um, but there's still important lessons to be learned from them. Yeah, no, I, I, I think about sort of the experience I've had in, in the last couple of years since the pandemic started and having to run and manage a large global technology company, Teamwork, was absolutely at the core of the success of not only getting through that pandemic and continually sort of creating value for our customers and, and, and being there for our people because it was a difficult time for a lot of people, but uh, you know, coming out of that and having that sort of that tight-knit community amongst our leadership and knowing that there's trust and that people are going to show up and give their best every day. I think that's, uh, it speaks volumes. And like, uh, I totally agree, but the pandemic also shook some of the foundation of that. Uh, so, you know, there were times during 2020 and 2021 where, where people said, you know, no one will ever work in an office again, right? No one's ever going to need to physically interact again. And being part of a team and having trust in your teammates really requires interpersonal, physical interaction. You can't really develop relationships with people over Zoom. I, I don't believe so. I think you can, you can maintain degrading relationships over Zoom, but I don't believe that you can build them, and I don't believe that you can maintain them in a static basis over Zoom. I think that Zoom has uh, or teams or whatever you know you know platform you decide to use over long periods of time I think there's missed social cues yeah. um, and, and there's just not the same level of interpersonal connection that that comes from it so you know I, I think you're you're spot on right but it must have been hard running a business when people were virtual and trying to keep it all together particularly you know when everything's so stressful and oh, yeah you know, even go to the supermarket is hard for people because they're worried about you know contracting a disease and dying from yeah. getting food. Yeah. I mean, um, the story that I like to tell is I joined this company a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic started, came in, we made a ton of changes, not only in terms of 
the entire management and the organizational structure. We went through a strategic review. You know, we started uh, merging and, and, and buying companies, and we came all out all, all of that. And two years later, I realized I hadn't actually met anyone in person, and we had to do all of that from you know a home office environment, and it was challenging. And people asked me, "Well, how were you able to do it?" And I said, "Well, a, it was hard work. Spent a lot of time on Zoom." But the most important thing in that during that period was communication. Sure. So I probably communicated more uh, during the last two years than probably I have in the last 10, just in terms of that interpersonal communication, setting up right, one on one. It just needs to be really deliberate, right? Has to be absolutely deliberate and has to be structured, especially for bigger groups, because it's very challenging when you've got 100 people on a call or 50 people or 20 people and you're trying to go through ideation or brainstorming sessions, if you don't have some kind of structure behind that, it makes it really, really difficult. Right, and in the early days of the pandemic, that type of structure, that amount of work to be deliberate about communicating with people is a little bit easier, at least I think. Please feel free to poke holes in that, in this, uh, because everyone was in a little bit of like a battlefield mode, right? Yep. Uh, there's a big crisis. Everyone's trying to come together to figure things out during the crisis. But as time goes on, people get lazy and people get like, you know, kind of comfortable with their routine. And it's just harder to have to over communicate when everybody's distributed. Yeah. I think it necessitates, you know, forcing people to come together at regular intervals to maintain those relationships in person. And, and, and that's, that's a big challenge, not only for uh, our business for, for any other business, I talk to a lot of different leaders, as, as I'm sure you do, and, and trying to break the ice a little bit more and getting people back together, getting people collaborating. The pendulum's definitely swung uh, a certain way. It's starting to come back to, uh, to the center. And, and for me, making sure, especially for our young, younger generation and the younger generation of talent, making sure that they have the right mentorship and development in place. It's difficult to do that in a virtual environment. Definitely. Employee experience is equally as important as customer experience. Certainly that's what we are seeing and, and, uh, and that's what we're, we're observing. When you're thinking about investing in companies, when it comes to the employee, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in a time period right now where people don't really understand their employees. Uh, there's terms thrown around like great resignation, quiet quitting, uh, that are just labels put on things because we don't actually understand why they're occurring. Um, and I think there, it's less for new investments and more for our portfolio companies currently, candidly, Kyle, because yep. like we have seen those trends in our portfolio companies. We've seen greater turnover in software engineers. We've seen a strong push of employees to want to work remotely. Um, we don't really understand maybe why they want to work remotely. We've seen, um, you know, in the healthcare provider universe, we've seen you know, tremendous uh, numbers of nurses come out of the workforce, which is putting, you know, real significant strain on yeah. the health systems in particular. And, you know, we need to understand these trends. And the only way to really understand them is to understand that people are individuals and try to reach, try to reach those individuals and try to understand what their experience is and why they're making decisions that they're making. So I think that the opportunity for us, you know, at, at Forsta, PG Forsta, is to really try to, you know, be that conduit and then try to use the intelligence we gather to help make, you know, good informed advice, uh, help provide good informed advice to our clients to make the right decisions because these trends are really troublesome. Yeah. 
And they're very, for some companies, they're very, very challenging and very costly and ultimately are contributing to some of the economic challenges that yeah. we have because wage rate inflation, incremental turnover is a big reason why we have an inflationary problem because companies need to raise yeah. their prices in order to compensate for these labor challenges that they're having. So you know, I, I think there is a, a huge opportunity for us today to help the world's economy understand the changing face of labor and the changing constraints that individuals have and the changing demands that they have from their employer. Yeah. Yeah, there's, no, there's no doubt that there's a correlation between a happy and engaged employee and a happy and engaged customer, right? And, no and we're drawing parallels on that every single day. And, and the more uh, that we're able to articulate that to our customers and, and, and to our people, uh, the better off we're, we're all going to be. Yep, absolutely. And it's not simple. Right? No, it's Be, not. Because it means that we really need to listen in a smart way. I mean, a, a lot of times people that do these cursor, uh, compulsory, cursory pulse surveys or employee engagement surveys, just they, they interpret them as well, people just want more money. We should just pay them more money. And it, it's rarely the – that's rarely the answer. You know, people – a lot of times don't quit their job over money. It's usually relationship issues. Their boss is a jerk. You know, they don't have, they're not upwardly mobile. Uh, they're not getting challenged enough. Um, so you really need to be thoughtful about what you probe on to make sure that you're getting the insights you actually need in order to improve as opposed to just going through the motions. We're in the business of, of, gathering and analyzing data and providing those insights back. But, you know, it's it's companies that take that next step to close the loop, as we like to say, and, and take action on those insights. Those are the ones that are going to benefit the most. Yes. It's just, it's it's hard because a lot of times what it, what likely those, the results of that survey is that there's leadership challenges, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and harder things to change need to happen in order to truly affect difference. So, but but the labor challenges are such that I don't think companies really have a choice right now. I, I think that they just trying to hire more people and ex, and expect that turnover is going to continue at the same pace that it has in the Great Resignation is not a business, not a viable business strategy in most industries. So, you know, really trying to listen to get to the right answers and make the right leadership decisions if they need to be made um, is the only viable option right yeah. now. You know, when I started on this journey two and a half years ago, right at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, the the, the sentiment of, of the employee base and then we started bringing together companies and through mergers and acquisitions, as we know, has an impact on morale and culture. Yeah. And so communication alone was not enough. And so we started doing quarterly pulses and we started trying to get an understanding of how the employee base was feeling about what was taking place, not only at you know within their homes and what's happening as a result of the pandemic, but more importantly, what's happening as a result of the decisions, the leadership decisions that we are making that we're impacting the direction of the business. Yeah. And um, you've had less turnover than most. Yeah. Right? I, I think, suspect that that's correlated. But but we didn't, it wasn't always like that, right? It wasn't right. always like that. It's been an absolute journey for us to get to where we are today. And we're not out of the woods yet. And I don't think any company is. And you can't rest on your laurels alone. And, and you know, I, I take great interest and pride in creating a working environment that people want to show up to every day, give their best, and get the opportunities for upwardly mobile sort of development opportunities. And, and, mm-hmm. But you got to focus on that. you got to make that a priority. Yeah, mo- most companies over the last couple of years, uh, 
I shouldn't say most. I don't, I don't know the statistics to back it up, but there are a lot of companies that stopped performance reviews over the last couple of years, stopped uh, workforce engagement surveys over the last couple of years because they felt like the environment wasn't indicative of a normal environment and or you know, didn't want to overburden an already burdened workforce, right? Mm -hmm. So they did the exact opposite of what they should have exactly. done. Yeah. <laughs> they should have continued performance review surveys because they're not methods to punish people, they're methods to help people improve. Yeah. And they should, they should have done more pulse surveys to try to get a beat on exactly what people are feeling. I mean, the idea of doing an annual annual workforce engagement survey is, it's, it's a good idea, it's obviously better than nothing, but think about what what changes in your life in a year. Right? Lots change in a year. I can a tell lot. you that. Yeah, a lot. It's like it, the data is uh, incredibly stale by the time the next survey comes out. So more regular listening to your employees yeah. again in an intelligent way is really a much smarter way to run a business. I mean, we, Lena Green, we're a small firm, right? As I mentioned, we're one office firm in Los Angeles, and we are now. Um, really going through a deliberate process to institute a performance review program. Uh, we call it professional development program for our investment professionals. Mm -hmm. So it's a group of 44 people, so it's small, um, but we're working with your team yep. uh, to design you know, very specific role expectations for each of our investment professionals at each level, and then using forces technology to conduct uh, surveys of both internal constituents as well as external constituents, whether they be portfolio company management teams or you know um, other external constituents like investment bankers or consultants that we interact with, just to try to help our individuals collect. And this is purely for their benefit. We're not using it for uh, pay or for promotions. We're exclusive. You know, the only people that get this information are people at Forsta because you're helping us facilitate it, and the individual at at LGP that this information is being collected on. So it's solely for their benefit to help them improve their performance. So we help. You know, we try to collect a, a pretty comprehensive view of feedback on that individual from everybody that they interact with. And it's been great. I mean, the um, it. We, we've we've done it this year on a purely opt-in basis, right? So, and how what's the uptake? Hundred percent really? so far. Yeah. I mean, we're doing it on a rolling basis by by class, um, but so far it's a hundred percent. We're, we're going to have to use you guys as a case study, no doubt. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I, I'm not. I'm just not surprised that yeah. it's a hundred percent. I think. I think people people want honest feedback, feedback. right? People yeah. want to get better. People don't want to hide. It's, uh, it's the human condition. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, to, to, I think the question, you know, I, I've worked at a lot of big organizations before LGP, right? Before I came to Leonard Green and work at J.P. Morgan, which I think is one of the best-run organizations in the world. But the performance review process was viewed as by, by most of the rank-and-file employees as not an opportunity, but as a threat, right? And um, we just thought it was important at LGP to make sure that we were not conducting it as a weapon, we were conducting it as a tool, as an opportunity for individuals just to collect information to help them improve their own performance. And I think that's why we we have so far a hundred percent participation rate because you know it's it's all upside, it's all great. Yeah, yeah I mean, if if you kind of start from the place that feedback actually is a gift, yeah, and you, and you come from that perspective, then that whole experience is designed. If it's designed well, it's it's it really should be. Very supportive process. Where and what we've done with your team, out, right? what we've done with your team is start from a blank sheet of paper. So we literally started with a, with a piece of white paper, and we said for each level on our investment team, let's write basically a job description. What expectations are are for 
our associates, for our VPs, for our principals, for our partners. And a tick, and then we got everybody on our investment team to contribute to it. And the, the good part about it is, is it's, it's uniquely ours, right? Like this role description would not be applicable to Blackstone or to KKR, yeah. despite the fact that the jobs are, are, are ostensibly the same. Mm-hmm. You know, our job description is uniquely LGP because it was written by us for us. That's the good part about it. Um, bad part about it is it took a really long time, but it's worth the time. You know, I think it's really worth the investment to make sure that it is right for us. So, and we'll see how it goes, but I'm I'm very optimistic about this. So presumably, investment. you participated in the in the process. Not yet. We're not, no. We haven't made it. We're, we're going to do partners uh, okay. last. We're, we're trying okay. to you know we rolled it out for our VPs uh, just two months ago. Fantastic. We're kind of doing it. Uh, I guess one month ago. Excuse me. And we're gonna, and we're going to do our principals, associates, and then partners. What's the best piece? But I will of, absolutely update. Yeah, yeah. What's the best piece of feedback you've ever gotten from one of your previous bosses? Oh boy. You know, there's never um uh there's never enough, right? Yeah. I mean, you always yearn for more. But I would say that um uh I would say it's probably at JP Morgan. So JP Morgan has a uh, and it, it was probably less direct feedback and more indirect just cultural um, knowledge that I picked up while I was there. Mm-hmm. You know, JP Morgan is like, you know, an institution, the banking institution in the world, right? And they don't chase business. They do the right business for them at the right time. And the culture, the entire culture of the organization is that they need to protect their own reputation first and foremost, reputation with customers, reputation with regulators, um, and that's a really important lesson to learn when you're in a trust business. At the end of the day, probably every business is a trust business, but but I think in financial institutions, yeah. it's, it's, it's more. Yep. Yeah, and, and there is a um, there's a tendency for you know for people with Type A personalities. Like I think most people that get into high finance have Type A personalities. Super aggressive, you know, you know, very competitive people. I I put myself in that category there's a tendency for you to really get wed to one transaction or one situation because it's in front of you. If you've pursued it aggressively, you want to win. Right. And that can be blinding to the big picture. And it's hard for individuals, particularly as they're coming up through their career, like let's say they're VPs or principals or maybe junior partners to really see the big picture and to understand that the most important thing is, is reputation, is long-term success, not necessarily near-term success. And it, you know, I, I learned from mentors early on in my career, but I think most significantly at J.P. Morgan and absolutely at Leonard Green. We have some, um, some senior investment professionals at LGP, particularly our managing partners, that are just have unbelievable clarity of vision. Yep. And they are, you know, above the BS, right? They, the only thing that they care about is our firm's reputation, their reputation, and our investment return. So they help us, you know, take out that, you know, short-term competitiveness and see the big picture. But uh, I'd say that that's, those are the best lessons I learned in my career. Yeah. You know, you, you touched on mentorship. How invaluable that is in terms of professional development. I mean, I can, I can speak for myself. I wouldn't, you know, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't have the ability to go and, and consult with someone, talk to someone who's yeah. been there, done that, right? Cause you can learn, you can take courses, you can read books about things, but, and you can, you know, you can learn it on the job, but sometimes when you don't know and you've got that blind spot, 
Yeah, I've had two, um, you know, I'd, I'd say two, potentially three, you know, significant mentors in, in my career. Yeah. And I, I think that the you know, first one was a guy named Stanford Nishikawa, second one was a guy named Andrew Bach, and third, um, a guy named um, John Bomber, who I work with right now. And in each three of those situations, Stanford, I was very young in my career, which I say potentially three, Andrew and John for sure. Stanford, I was a little bit younger. Uh, so lessons were more simple when you're just out of school and you're learning from someone. The lessons get harder when you become more senior working for someone um, as a mentee mm. because there's potential for competitiveness, right? Um, and in both of those instances with Andrew and John, they were, they were both, they are both people that are um, you know, completely confident in their own skin, you know, completely have pure clarity of vision. You know, they're, they're people that understand what their strengths are and where they need other people and are comfortable you know, splitting the work, splitting the credit, and were always comfortable giving me you know, feedback, giving me rope that I needed to develop, and I, you know, I owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude. Given the current sort of desire for you know, flexible work. How do you cement that mentor-mentee relationship in a virtual world? It's going to be a challenge, I think, personally. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a very interesting debate about whether or not it's, it's better to be in the office or virtual. Any job where, however, you are dealing with, you know, debate, uh, where you need a diverse set of opinions that are shared openly and honestly to come to the right conclusion for an organization's strategic direction or yep. to make the right investment decision, you need to be in person a lot because like, you know, the strength of diversity is only realized if people are comfortable sharing their point of views. That I think probably, you know, can be done through deliberate communication like you did during COVID, but I think it probably is some hybrid between it, people. It'll being definitely be a hybrid, right? I think. I think. I don't think we found that balancing point, that equilibrium point, if you will. Uh, I don't think anyone's cracked the code, quite honestly. And, I, and and if they have, please, and you're listening, I'm all ears. Um, but uh, you know, I think we will move to a flexible, hybrid working environment where we we try to we being you know the, the companies and, and the leaders, we try and find. Uh, an equation that works for both. Yeah. Right? That yeah. gets that level of engagement, gets that uh, that flexibility, that gives people the tools to do what they want to do and, and, and bring their best, but at the same time, making sure that you're creating and fostering an environment where people can be their best, right? So it's, it's this delicate balance. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a learning process, likely, over the next couple of years, too, because you know, there I've heard many times over the last two years that, People have said, world is more efficient if people work remotely. It has to be a remote workforce. I think that that, you know, that in, in some cases I will acknowledge that that probably has been true. However, the environment that people have been operating in and living in the last couple of years is highly unusual and is not the environment we're going to have over the next 10 years, right? It's going to be different. So we can't take the pandemic time period and apply it forward and assume that it's all going to be the same because it's not going to be. Uh, we also can't take the pre-pandemic period and say, okay, the pandemic's over. Things are just going to be like that because they're not. The pandemic did happen. People did change. Expectations did change. We need to learn. I also think that like, you know, in certain parts of the country, it's, it's logistically just still super challenging for, for sure. people with, uh, with dependents to go to an office. 
You know, there's schools that shut down when there's a when there's an outbreak and a kid has to stay home or they might have elderly parents that can no longer be in a group setting, so they have to live at home and getting people to take care of them is just very challenging. So I think employers do have to maintain a lot of flexibility for the next couple of years, yep. but with an eye down. towards an, an understanding that interpersonal relationships build trust and trust builds high-performing organizations. Here, here. We talked a little bit about you know, the pandemic, operating a business during a pandemic. We're now moving into a post-pandemic phase, and there's some storm clouds on the horizons. There's a lot of activity happening. We've got inflation. We've got macroeconomic pressures that are taking place. Does this change the way that you're thinking about investments today? It must. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's caused us to be a lot more cautious. The environment we're dealing with right now is really is not uh, – you know, doesn't have uh, precedent in our professional lifetimes. Um, and it, it really doesn't, no, no situation has pure precedent uh, ever. Uh, but people try to look for precedent, and here people are really struggling to find precedent. The pandemic, you know, hit every business and every person in surprising ways. It's just a question of degree and direction. Some people in businesses, it hit hard positively. Some people in businesses, it hit hard negatively. And then the government and individual response are similarly impacting everybody and every business. Again, it's just a question of degree and direction. And again, it's just, it's all surprising mm -hmm. because we've never necessarily, we, we haven't actually dealt with this before. The amount of inflation that we're seeing as a result of, you know, in large part government stimulus and in large part supply chain constraints, um, you know, no one that's really working today have, has seen that. You know, there, there are certain people at the end of the end of their careers or later stages of their careers that were working in the late 70s, early 80s. Yep. But there's not a lot of people. The, the core of the workforce today has never seen inflation like they're seeing today. Um, so as a result of that uncertainty and the you know, significance of the environment that we're, um, that we're dealing with, we've been pretty cautious and will continue to be cautious uh, until we see some clear path. You know, this is also like... Is I think about the last two recessions that I've been working through. So you know, after September 11th, and then after the credit crisis, th those were those are pretty extreme shock-based events, or, or more shock-based events than than perhaps what we're seeing right now. I mean, obviously the pandemic was a shock, and there was a bit of a recession uh, during the pandemic. Um, but the period of time we're, we're dealing with right now, post-pandemic potential recession, I happen to believe that we are in one. Um, but but that that's it's it's more slow to evolve right now, and there's a lot of conflicting you know signals within it that's also making things a bit confusing, and that's why you see a tremendous amount of volatility in the public markets. Yep. You know there there's there's lack of conviction either way because the signals that we see are confusing confusing. You know inflation's certainly high, um, but un unemployment's very low too, and GDP has been has been low. So, you know, there's debate as to whether or not we are in a, in a recession even right, right now. So, um, you know, people can deal with good news, people can deal with bad news, but uncertainty generally people struggle with. And we just have a lot of uncertainty right now. You, you touched on the recession. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time in the UK. That's where our headquarters is based. And, you know, certainly uh, Europe is, uh, is seeing quite a bit of activity right now. There's volatility in, in the markets. You know, we talk about recession. So in your sort of experience, having been through a few to, to, to date, how do you drive growth in your companies if you're having to sort of be somewhat cautious? Like, what's your experience? Sure. 
a lot of it has to do with strength management teams. Mm. You know, we um, we have a, a fairly unique approach as private equity investors. Private equity generally tends to be control investors. So investor, you know, has control of the board, can make decisions on replacing management, can, you know, therefore make significant decisions on the strategic direction of the business. And most private equity firms really avail themselves of that control. We generally do not. I think we recognize, and hopefully you feel, that uh, we believe that management teams run companies, that board members do not. And we know that we are board members, not you know, management team members. So we like to make sure that we have in place the right management teams to drive businesses, because you're going to know better than we will what needs to be done. You're just naturally better leaders of your businesses than we are, because everybody that works at LGP kind of looks like me. You know, former investment bankers, thankfully not physically, but from a background standpoint. Well, <laughs> you know, I see what I... <laughs> um, so we, you know, we don't have operating partners. We don't have you know, senior advisors. Yeah. We don't have people that will you know, step in to run businesses. So, so the most important thing is just picking the right team and making sure that they have the right authorship, the right accountability measures to make sure that they're driving results. And we've seen over the last couple of years some really amazing things out of our management teams because, you know, companies were dealing with tremendous shocks over the last couple of years. And the creativity and dynamism of teams to drive growth, you know, is really, really impressive. Um, that's, that's, that's certainly the most important thing. Um, the second most important thing is just making sure that you really upfront pick the right company in the right sectors. You know, sectors that do have a lot of growth opportunity. You know, if you buy a company that has, you know, smaller market share because no one has a lot of market share and they have the ability to really grow and gain share irrespective of uh, the pricing environment or the overall market growth environment is really an important, uh, important thing right now to make sure that you're, you know, controlling your growth irrespective of what GDP does. Are there any particular sectors that you're warming up to now, even as we sort of see the recession looming on the horizon? I spend all my time, just about all my time in healthcare, yeah. uh, which generally tends to be a less cyclical market than the overall economy. It's not acyclical. It's not countercyclical. It's just less cyclical. You know, in the credit crisis, there, were, there was a dip in cancer treatments, and it wasn't because you know, people got less cancer in 2008 is because less people could pay for cancer treatments in 2008. Um, so all of healthcare is, I think, more attractive than other cyclical aspects of the economy right now, um, just as a result, just as, as a result of the fact that it has less volatility. Yeah. Um, but, you know, healthcare has been dealt pretty significant, you know, um, you know opportunities and blows from COVID too, that will take some time to figure out how it's going to play through. So, Health system market, you know, uh, healthcare providers as as a broad class, you know, were shut down for you know several months during several periods of time during COVID, except for non-elective uh, types of procedures, and that caused some financial challenges for those those businesses. Um, most healthcare providers today are still also dealing with pretty significant staffing challenges associated with the great resignation. You know, being a nurse is probably the hardest job in the world in the best of times during COVID. It's even ever more difficult. Um, so there's some real challenges in the provider market, um, real cost challenges when they have limited ability to control price because a lot of it comes from the government and it's set, you know, by regulatory means. So to the provider market, it's a bit, a bit difficult right now. You can find pockets of opportunity, but 
by and large, it's, it's a difficult place. I'd say that pharma services also today has seen a lot of volatility because there's been a lot of money thrown at COVID, right? There wasn't a single person in the world in 2020 that didn't say, oh my God, I hope they can develop a cure, a vaccine for this thing fast and let's throw everything we have at it. And as a result, we threw everything we had at it. And that created a lot of growth opportunity for companies in the pharma and pharma supply chain. Uh, it also created a lot of tightness and supply of, of services and products in, in that market that's still kind of work its, trying to work its way out. And that market won't be terribly economically cyclical. We still haven't yet seen kind of what a post-COVID pricing and capacity environment looks like. So I think there will be opportunities there, uh, but I think it'll probably be another 12 months before we know what status quo is. The healthcare IT market will continue to be, you know, an area where we have, we see, you know, a lot of opportunity just because um, there's tremendous efficiencies to be had in the entire you know, healthcare landscape in the U.S. and internationally. Um, and that's an area that, you know, has not seen tremendous volatility over the last couple of years. It's just, you know, these are businesses that are either services businesses or technology providers that, you know, have long-term secular opportunities, did not see a lot of, a lot of volatility. So it, it's, um, it's easier to underwrite what their operating environment will be over the next couple of years. And it should be, you know, incremental adoption, pricing power, things like that. Most of us have been a patient at one point or another in, in in the healthcare environment. What do you think is going to be the next most exciting innovation that we can expect over the next ten years? What's the, what's the big change coming in healthcare? I think it'll it'll be um, it, it it'll be it'll be very much uh, I, I think likely from the from the former market. So there there. Our understanding of human biology has advanced very significantly over the last 20 years, and that has created opportunities for gene and th cell therapies to be to be developed that are much more efficacious. They happen to be very expensive, but they but they are much more efficacious in some cases curative. Mm -hmm. So you know if you look at overall healthcare spending in the United States, roughly 12% of it is pharma spend, and I think that that pharma spend will grow. But overall, healthcare spending may even decrease as a result of the you know, hi more highly efficacious nature of uh, uh, new pharmaceutical products that are being developed today. So I think that's the most exciting area of healthcare, in in my opinion. Um, the second most exciting area of healthcare is in just the shift to what we call value-based purchasing in the U.S. So. The way that the vast majority of healthcare works today is almost like the way that your auto mechanic works. You hear a, if you have a you know, squeak in your engine, you take your you know, car to the auto mechanic that runs a bunch of diagnostics on it, tells you everything you have wrong and what it will cost to fix those squeaks, right? So there's a huge incentive for your auto mechanic to find a bunch of things wrong. And the auto mechanic doesn't have any incentive to help you, you know, change your oil on a regular basis or to make sure that you rotate your tires on a regular basis. That's the current fee-for-service environment. A value-based purchasing environment would be instead you pay your auto mechanic $100 a month and your auto mechanic then calls you on a regular basis and says, hey, Kyle, I haven't seen you in a while. You know, your tires need rotating or I saw you speeding last week. Right. You should probably slow down. Right. Um, so that we... We are moving there. It'll it'll be a really long time because it takes you know cultural change really to drive that, and cultural change generally takes a long time to occur. So that's the second most exciting area. But both both of these are really long term, dramatically you know uh, revolutionary trends in the healthcare industry, and as a result, you know they're difficult to play as an investor because they have uncertain there's uncertain pace of change. 
and uncertain return. Um, but I, I think that over the long run, they are the biggest opportunities. You know, we touched on quite a bit on, you know, leading companies managing businesses through a pandemic or these big shock events. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned running a private equity fund through a, a crisis like a global pandemic? From an investment standpoint, I think it's vital to be able to develop trusting relationships with people in person to be able to judge whether or not it's the right, right investment to make. From an investment management standpoint, I also think it's it's vital, you know. I think of my role as a board member of uh, the companies that I'm associated with to be the guy that you want to call when stuff goes wrong, wrong, right? Being a CEO, you and I have talked about this in the past. Yeah. I think that being a CEO is the loneliest job in the world. Can be. Right? If things go wrong, you can't tell your team that things are going wrong because they look to you for lead, for yeah. guidance and they look right. to you for confidence. Yeah. Um, you can bring it home, but you know you don't really want to do that to your significant. That doesn't work. That day. doesn't work very well. <laughs> so who can you go to? You know, people have some advisors, some yeah. friends, uh, but ideally it would be your board members. Yep. You know, that 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 know your business, understand your challenges, and can be, you know, a a trustworthy person to share your challenges, help you solve them, or just be there to listen. So that's what I strive to be. Um, sometimes it's hard for me because I hear bad news all day. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, you know, to be, to be able to develop those relationships, you really need to be in person. You know, you really need to be consistent, clear, you know, be the same person every time, you know, have the same reaction to everything. Um, and it's just hard to do virtually and hard to do when you don't know people well enough. Yeah. Um, and I think from a, from a team standpoint, you know, we, I think that we did see our culture, Leonard Green culture fray a little bit. You know, we, we go to market really as like family office. We're a very small group of people, despite the fact that we are a, you know, a globally relevant large cap private equity firm. We're a really small, nice group of people. We only have one office in Los Angeles and we know each other's families. We care about each other. And that did fray, and that was sad, you know. So we've been tried to be very intentional about making sure that we uh, we build those relationships as well as build new ones because our whole organization has, has changed and grown a lot. You know, you've worked with a lot of management teams. You've had a lot of success in making these investments. What piece of advice would you give someone like me, another CEO, a management team, in terms of you know as you as we think about sort of these turbulent times? ahead of us. Anything that comes to mind? Environment is always changing. Competitive landscape is always changing. As a CEO, you want to have all the answers, but understanding that you might not is probably, you know, can be in some cases, the best thing for your business to make sure that you're constantly learning. The other thing that I think is super important and very underrated is, um, you know, being approachable, being, you know, being a good leader, in my opinion, means that you have you're an honest person, you're very authentic, you have clear, consistent communication to everybody at all times. That's sometimes hard, right? Um, yeah. you know, but, but it's super important to make sure that you are developing relationships with the people that work with you, that make them want to go the extra mile for you, right? If you are homo economicus, you know, like a leader that you know, looks like you should be in a magazine, and, but you don't actually, you're not actually a real person, yeah. People are much less likely to work hard for you, much less likely to be loyal to you. Yeah. If people like know Kyle Ferguson and love Kyle Ferguson because they know the real you and they want to work for you, the company's going to do way better. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, and we saw that during COVID, right? People really stepped up.
And I was amazed at how many families were homeschooling two, three, four kids, working two jobs, having to do all of this, not being able to leave their homes, getting on calls early in the morning, getting on calls late at night for their customers. The amount of commitment, you wouldn't have that if you didn't have strong leaders, if you didn't have strong leadership. So I couldn't, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Look, um, it, it's been an absolute pleasure getting a chance to, to speak with you. I've got a couple of questions here and because it wouldn't be an HX superheroes podcast we didn't talk about customer experience a little bit and so one of the questions who's I'll, a superhero though? Is, it, <laughs> is it you or is it me could be either who knows <laughs> time will tell we um, should maybe maybe after this you should uh we should do a survey of, i think so people that i think listen so to the well podcast. we've got the technology to <laughs> do that right <laughs> So I think what that'll lead to is you will uh, you will choose like pretty boring guests, so you will always be voted the superhero. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of the questions that we're going to pose to all of our guests is, what is the best customer experience that you've ever had, and most importantly, why? Um, it's probably easier to remember bad customer experiences because I think <laughs> those uh, stick in people's minds. But, but probably the best customer experience I had, going back to the, your, your cycling question, was. Uh, was a, a cycling customer experience. So I, I, I have this, uh, I had this uh, set of wheels, uh, carbon fiber wheels made by a company called Envy in, in um, Utah. And they delaminated. So what it, what it basically means is, the, you know, the, the layers of carbon fiber that construct the wheel started to separate. And they started to separate primarily because of the heat in Los Angeles. And I was riding down some, you know, fast roads, braking hard, it was super hot outside. Uh, and and they they failed and thankfully I noticed it before it became a catastrophic failure. But Envy has a you know a um, lifetime warranty on their wheels and uh, despite the fact that I was probably a bit at fault riding my brakes too hard and too too high of heat, uh, they you know basically no questions asked, took the wheels back, sent me a brand new set of wheels, and I will be you know a customer for life of Envy. And a fun fact is that there's two, is more than two, but I think in, in my mind there's two you know, uh, very popular carbon fiber wheel manufacturers in the world. One is Envy. Mm -hmm. The other is Zip, Z-I-P-P, -P, which is almost my last name, right? So on, on paper, <laughs> on paper I should be riding Zip wheels. <laughs> but as a result of this customer experience, I will be an Envy customer for life. And I just think, like, you know, irrespective of what their policy was, it was just, the policy was super clear. Dealing with them was super clear and very easy. So they were just, they were, they were honest, they were clear, um, consistent in their follow through. Um, so I, I really I have a great degree of respect for them and how they dealt with that situation. That's great. I mean, sometimes it's actually not that difficult. It's just getting it right. Yeah, I got a person yeah. on the phone when I called. That person like quickly understood what the issue was, quickly was able to resolve it. I mean, it was an extraordinarily seamless transaction, despite the fact that at the end of the day, what I was asking for was like $3,500 worth of free stuff. And then they, uh, and they followed through. So it was great. Great. And last, but certainly not least, if you weren't doing what you're doing today, and that's as an investor for Leonard Green, what would you? What would be your alternative career? Would it be pursuing a, a, a cycling a degree in cycling in the Tour de France? I don't know that I could do that. <laughs> um, these guys are superhuman. They they would be. They are superheroes. Super <laughs> yeah. um, I don't really know. I'm, I'm not the type of person to reflect back and wish I did anything different than what I'm doing today. I'm I'm pretty 
you know, as I said at the outset, we're a collection of our experiences. So I'm comfortable with the experiences I've had before, and I never second guess the decisions I made or the things that I do. But um, but I do think at, at some point, I, I think it would be nice to be a teacher. You know, I think that, or 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 even a sports coach. To your comment earlier, yeah. You know, I think that we're a teacher and a sports coach. Uh, you know, I, I think that they're and both my parents. Uh, you know, when I was very young, were teachers. Yeah, same with my mother was a teacher too. You yeah. just have an incredible yeah. ability to really you know support kids, um, it's, and, it's and particularly you know in junior high school and, and high school where there's a lot of really important you know life lessons that are learned and important steps that are created. And I think um, you know being part of helping shape the next generation would be very personally rewarding. Great, fantastic, Pete. Again, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on our first podcast. You're absolutely more Will than welcome. Will it be welcome. the last? Well, we're more than welcome <laughs> to have you back in a future date. But thank great. you again. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. <laughs>